We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Looking back, it's easy to see that the turning point of the Civil War, when Union victory became inevitable, was in July 1863 with the twin rebel defeats at Gettysburg and Vicksburg. Unless it was in November 1864 with the re-election of Abraham Lincoln, or maybe September 1864 in the fall of Atlanta, or perhaps it was Antietam, or even Fort Sumter. Maybe it's not that easy to see when the tide turned irreversibly. And that's one clue to today's topic. Why did Confederate soldiers fight on to the bitter end? What sustained them after the turning point, whatever it was, through the years of 1864 and 1865? We'll get some provocative answers to these and other questions from Professor Jason Phillips, author of Die Hard Rebels, The Confederate Culture of Invincibility, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you on a cold, gray, rainy Friday afternoon in February 2012 from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University but not representing the university or the state system or the program prioritization committee or any other aspect of academic life here. And likewise, my guest will speak only for himself, not for his place of employment, I'm sure. We are uh, lining up some good shows in the days ahead, which you can learn about, as always, from the website impedimentsofwar.org. Uh, Mark Gaffney produces that excellent site that tells us who's going to be on the show, who's been on the show, uh, often with links to books you can buy to read more from the people who have been on the show. So please take a look at www.impedimentsofwar.org. And while you're there, feel free to donate money to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, 
which I always promote today. I was able to share one of the uh, extra books I'd gotten from a publisher with a graduate student who needed it and the library copy was missing. So it's actually true that some of the money you send this way either goes to books or to replacement books. Uh, some of it just goes to uh, taking on vacation and giving to my children or, you know, who knows, spending it on, well, I was going to say hookers and blow, but that's really, I'm sure my mom is listening and that would be inappropriate, and it's not true either. Um, the point is that it's not a tax-deductible donation. Don't give it uh, and claim it. It's just uh, for for reuse for any purpose uh, at all. But most of it does go to the website or to books, and we appreciate that. The donations are welcome, and so are your comments with them. Any suggestions for future guests are always welcome. Uh, and indeed, we often get people on the show that way. Coming up on the show uh, next week, uh, March 2nd, uh, Adam Aronson will be here talking about uh, his book, The Great Heart of the Republic, St. Louis and the Cultural Civil War. We'll take a, a week off after that. I will be in sunny uh, Seattle, Washington, talking to the Puget Sound Civil War Roundtable. It's also spring break here at East Carolina, so no show that week. But then back on the 16th, Leonard Lanier, historian in this part of the world at the Museum of the Albemarle, uh, not far from from Greenville here. It's in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. has done some interesting research on Brian Grimes, the last major general of the Confederacy, in his, his remarkable career before, during, and after the war. Uh, March 23rd, we've got Andre Flesch uh, talking about the Revolution of 1861. He'll be looking at the American Civil War in the context of uh, global changes, of, of nationalist struggles in other countries, a, a good perspective worth considering. And we've got other guests coming up after that. Um, uh, I've just been corresponding with Earl Hess, uh, who's got a new book on the war in the West. Look forward to having him on later in the season. So lots of good things coming up, and, and please do join us for those here on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, well, if you're uh, also looking to, to uh, meet in person, uh, tell me who ought to be on the show. Tell me what you like and don't like. Uh, if you're not in Seattle, Washington, two weeks, uh, I will be speaking on Monday, uh, this coming February, uh, Monday, what is that, the 27th, at Mississippi State University uh, on Lincoln and Grant. Uh, Starkville, Mississippi and Mississippi State are the home of the U.S. Grant Papers for reasons that uh, you can learn about if you go back and listen to past interviews with uh, uh, John Marzlak, who's been on the show a couple of times, uh, or even the late John Y. Simon before him. But suffice to say, the papers are there at Mississippi State, and they have gotten a grant from the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation to put on a series of talks, and uh, they've asked me to show up there. And as tr it turns out, that is the home of our guest today, Professor Jason Phillips, uh, who teaches at Mississippi State University and has written a fascinating book on the uh, curious case of the diehard rebels, why uh, Confederates fought on late into the war. Jason, are you there? I'm here. Wonderful. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. You uh, uh, so so you're you're at Mississippi State. It's raining and miserable here today. Uh, uh, what should I be wearing to show up there on Monday? 
I'm not a weatherman. We had uh, a balmy 80-degree day yesterday, and today it's a blustery 50-degree day. So I would pack for that <laughs> and anything just, in between. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be ready for, for anything, and that sounds good. <laughs> well, I, I'm looking forward very much to visiting there. Uh, your, uh, your, your colleague or... Uh, uh, I guess retired colleague John Marzlak mm-hmm. was kind enough to invite me, and he mentioned Ann Marshall uh, is also there, who was recently on this show. So we're, we're going to have a, a Civil War talk radio reunion on Monday. It looks like <laughs> that's great. Now, uh, you and I met. Uh, it seems to me at the uh, the Civil War Institute this past summer, which now seems. Ten years ago, uh, as the academic yeah. year has gone by, uh, and we had hoped to do the show earlier, and, and I think you were ill, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you sounding good, uh, because I've been very interested in this book. It really is, is worth uh, uh, the listeners uh, learning more about. Let me start with the, the central question of the book, which is is why the uh, why Confederates chose to fight on. If you ask the average Civil War enthusiast a question like that, I'm, I'm sure people would have all kinds of answers. But you preemptively address a couple of them in, in your introduction. Uh, you point out that the the soldiers of 1865, who in their letters and diaries insist the war is going well, or at least insist that they believe in ultimate victory, you say that they are not insane, they're not delusional, and they're not bombastic. Uh, that we can rule those out from the start and, and look for more serious answers. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think. Well, I think that, as you know, Jerry, w- when we read these collections of letters and diaries, um, you, on some level, get to know these individuals, and 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 you you meet them in an, in an intellectual sense, and and also in an emotional sense. I think you you know you can be, you can get to appreciate whether you're whether you're reading the letters of a patient person or a person with a sense of humor. And as I read countless collections of, of diehard rebels' letters, I, I never came across an individual, and, and granted, I'm not trained as a psychiatrist, but I never came across a collection of letters from someone who struck me as, as delusional or insane. Uh, and, and the collections did appear to be sincere. I went into the project expecting that perhaps there would be great dissonance between what I would read in private diaries that the soldiers uh, kept with them and and what I discovered in their letters home, so that you know perhaps they were, were putting on a, a face uh, a, a false sense of of optimism and confidence for uh, for the benefit of their loved ones back home, and I was surprised at how infrequently I found that. Um, that, that soldiers really did keep the same tone of optimism, and I finally had to come to the conclusion that that they did, in fact, expect to win the war. Uh, that that they weren't insane about that. That they were they were rational beings, just like us. Uh, and and once I came to that conclusion, I realized that that the divide between us and and these men, given that we knew the outcome of the war and they didn't. Um, was it was a serious obstacle to our understanding what the Civil War felt like uh, and how they fought it from their perspective. I mean, that's that's one of the challenges in history generally is trying to figure out how to uh, 
see things through the eyes of those who are there. We always know the end of the story, and mm-hmm. it tends to it, it tempts us into presentism to assuming we're since we know more, we must be better. But but it really is an obstruction to understanding how they could have persevered. Uh, when when you read these letters and diaries, you make a point that you used them as as your main sources that you did not use memoirs or regimental histories uh, why why did you exclude those sources well for the for this reason we just discussed I was concerned that the the knowledge of defeat would affect the writing uh, so that you know looking back to what it felt like uh, it, in 1864, from the perspective of of 1874 or 84, um, is it just pre- presented a host of problems? I thought uh, to using those sources that, given the richness of the wartime letters and diaries that are out there, I thought I, I really don't need to add that extra burden, uh, that interpretive burden, and and perhaps you know cloud my vision of what the war felt like at the time by adding on uh, regimental histories and, and post-war sources. Please understand, I'm not saying that those, that those post-war sources are false. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm merely pointing out that given the richness of what was available at the wartime uh, evidence and, and the fact that I was asking a wartime question, I thought, I don't I don't need to second guess whether this fact or this sentiment uh, in a post-war source is genuine or tinged by uh, you know, 20 years of, of post-war memory and, and the fact of defeat. I think that's really, it's an interesting use. I think it shows uh, progress in the sophistication in the way Civil War historians have used things like regimental histories. If you look at Robert Hunt's book on the the veterans of the Army of the Cumberland, he makes the point in his introduction that he used nothing but regimental histories Mm -hmm. because his point was to look at their views in the 1880s and 1890s and that wartime letters were not not what he was interested in. He was trying to look at how they remembered the war, not how they experienced it. And you've done just the opposite. uh, That, you know, a generation ago, these would all be seen as primary sources. They were all written by the guys who were there, so we can use them all indiscriminately, and, and uh, you know, people sometimes yeah. ask. Uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to add on to that. That yeah, it's a, it's tricky because they're they're all eyewitness accounts mm-hmm. of, of of the same events. Um, but you know, I think if we if we just look at our own lives, we know that that you know, my my memories of of my performance uh, in high school on the basketball team are much different than the experiences I had at the, at the time when, yes. when I played basketball. And so you, you, you begin to appreciate, just when you look at it from, from a personal perspective, that, well, yes, of course, these men changed over time. Uh, and, and even an event as, as uh, central to their lives as their, as their war service in, in the Civil War would have been affected by them maturing in age. Uh, and, and I also think something else that we have to think about when we look at regimental histories, um, which I don't think is so much of a problem with the diaries and the, and the letters, um, it becomes a genre of writing. Mm-hmm. And, and once, you, once you read regimental histories and then you start modeling 
your regimental history, perhaps, on what you read of, a, of an Iowa regiment or an Alabama regiment, uh, then, then the narrative of the war starts to take on uh, a, a certain plot line. And, and, I, and I wonder if because those sources were, were written for public consumption, if the soldiers themselves, you know, I mean, if you're interested in writing a regimental history, then chances are you've already read some. Uh, and, and how does that affect the way you remember the war and, and the way you, you implot the, the narrative of the war that you're writing? You, you, you have to decide what gets included and what's excluded. Uh, from from the 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 narrative that you're writing, and so I think there are there are there are many issues besides the issue of memory and the distance of time that come into some of these post-war sources and how we should treat them. Yeah, and, and of course, and they're writing for specific audiences. In many cases, other members of the regiment, if they're written mm-hmm. on subscription, or at least they know they're writing writing for a civilian audience. But that does tie in with that interesting fact you brought out that the soldiers whose works, whose letters you read, writing home, were saying the same thing that they were putting in their journals and diaries, that, that they weren't just putting on a brave front for the home folks, uh, that you really tapped into something central about how Confederate soldiers experienced uh, the late war. Let me ask you a specific question about uh, how how they endured the what seems to us inevitable defeat of, of 64 and 65. One of the obvious consolations people have in difficult times is religion, and you start out with a chapter about that. Uh, the One might be tempted to say, well, this is just the old, you know, there's no atheists in foxholes saying from World War II. Uh, when you're in a war, uh, suddenly you, you find reason to pray. But you... You, you say there's a specific Southern dimension to, to the religion of the Confederates. Can you talk about that? Yes. I mean, I think that diehard rebels were very Christian, uh, very evangelical Christian. Uh, they were a very evangelical Christian group. Uh, and that's not to say that every diehard rebel I encountered uh, expressed religious beliefs. Many of them did not. Um, but their notion of of God and especially providence uh, during the war was that they were true believers of God and and God would not forsake them, which meant that because they believed in providence, the notion that God ordered all things and and directed the future, uh, that meant that God was going to find a way to win the war for the Confederacy because any other outcome it would mean that the enemy, uh, which you know was composed from their point of view of, of you know barbarians and and infidels, uh, that would mean that God was blessing their cause and and within their belief system, that was unfathomable. They couldn't they couldn't comprehend that happening. Now after defeat, they they found a way to incorporate defeat. Uh, into their understanding of the war and 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 still held on to the belief that God favored them. Uh, I came across very few men who assumed that Confederate defeat meant that either there was no God or God had forsaken the South, um, which you know could have been logical outcomes of of that event. And that's not how they interpreted it for the most part. Well, the. Uh 
one of the questions that obviously comes up is, is how do they interpret uh, uh, the defeat that is facing them? How do they respond to uh, the, the eventually unmistakable signs that the Confederacy is not winning the war, that the evil or, or corrupt or, or inept Yankees are actually defeating them? This, of course, brings us to a much larger philosophical question of how one reconciles uh, the existence of God and the existence of evil. And uh, rather than try to answer that eternal question in 30 seconds, we're going to take a short break now. We'll come back after a few uh, messages from World Talk Radio, and we'll resume talking with Jason Phillips today on Civil War Talk Radio. your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding what about your business we've got a program that will help streamline your image management tune in to marketing matters hosted by yasmine anderson smith Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jason Phillips. He's the author of Die Hard Rebels, The Confederate Culture of Invincibility. And we've been talking about the the fundamental question of what kept Confederate soldiers going through 1864, 1865, when the war seemed so uh, evidently, at least in retrospect, uh, going against the Confederacy. Uh, In the first segment, one of the uh, really interesting things that this book brings out that we discussed was that this really was what the soldiers thought. Their their contemporary letters, their contemporary diaries show they were not just uh, uh, pretending to be brave about it or or trying to buck up the folks at home. Uh, They really felt that Things would turn, that, that somehow God would not let them down, that the, they would win the war ultimately. Uh, which brought us to uh, the next question. For a deeply religious people, uh, going back to the days of, of the Second Great Awakening, when uh, uh, evangelical Protest- Protestantism swept through the South early in the 19th century, how is it uh, that these people reconciled the idea of uh, of a just God who who favored the South, who plainly favored the South, uh, in their view, with uh, the irrefutable fact of defeat, and and that 
I mean, you, you use the phrase, Jason, cognitive dissonance. Uh, how do we deal with that? Uh, how do they deal with that, I should say? Well, when we look at the wartime evidence, um, we can see how they prepare themselves for defeat by how they handle major defeats during the war. You know, what is the interpretation? What's the religious explanation for Gettysburg and Vicksburg and, and the fall of Atlanta? And time and again, the diehard rebels interpret these as signs that, that God loves them, uh, but is at the same time chastening them. Right, that, that the South uh, has sinned in some way uh, and that God is, is punishing them for those sins. One thing that happens uh, in the armies in particular in the, in the last two years of the war um, is an immense uh, religious revival where men in the ranks um, who are, of course, facing death, uh, especially in 1864 on a, on a daily basis, these men... Um, come to religion, they are, they are born again, uh, and, and they see this as further proof that, that God is in fact on their side and that there, there, is, there is meaning in, in this suffering and in these defeats. When the ultimate defeat happens, when, when the Confederacy dies in 1865, um, they use this interpretation of the defeats during the war to explain what had happened to the Confederate nation. And here I, I think we, we begin to see the seeds of the lost cause. And, and we can appreciate how this wartime culture of invincibility, uh, these wartime notions of, of God being on their side, translated into the post-war memory an explanation of, of Confederate defeat. And that's really one of the central points that, that you make here, um, uh, that, that ultimately this wartime culture does lead not only to the lost cause, but uh, you know, persists in, in things we can see in contemporary culture. But uh, focusing back on the 19th century, I'm curious about your, your thoughts on the role of clergy in this, this uh, sustaining the South in, in these times. You, we see sometimes the people who one expects to be least warlike, uh, women and the clergy, expressing the most violent uh, pro-South or anti-North sentiments. Uh, was that a, subs a substantial factor in, in prolonging the war? Yes, I, I don't know that I would blame them for prolonging war. Um, I would certainly put more blame uh, at, in, in Richmond and, and uh, within the political and, and military leadership of the Confederacy for, for making decisions that kept the war going. That's a whole other issue, but you're right uh, that the, the clergy in the South uh, and the women who, who were more often than not, in, in every Southern community, I suspect the, the the more religious members, if you know, if we follow what 19th century historians have, have shown us about about religion in that era, the women tended to be uh, churchgoers at a much higher rate than the men. Yes, they they were patriotic. Uh, they believed in the war effort. They believed that that their prayers. Uh, their personal prayers for for their 
men at in who were in arms uh, would directly go to God and 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 therefore you know shelter their loved ones on the field of battle and 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 create sort of a, a, a god of of of, uh, of sort of an Old Testament god of battles who who would who would wage war uh, in in an invisible fashion for the Confederacy. Um, the the this, I guess the civil religion of the Confederacy is is very strong from from its inception from the moment when. Uh, the Confederate Constitution invokes God in a in a direct fashion, whereas the U.S. Constitution does not. That was that was something that that the Confederate clergy embraced and noted uh, repeatedly at the beginning of the war. Incidentally, it's something that Northern clergy uh, got nervous about when they when they recognized um, how open the Confederate. Uh, clergy were in their support of the war and, and the fact that they sort of had an ear with the government and, and people like, um, you know, like Leonidas Polk and other major southern religious figures getting involved directly in, in the war effort. Um, that was noted by, by the Union as well. Of course, on the Union side, you have the president, uh, Lincoln, who makes more openly religious statements in, in a way, not not explicitly Christian, not, uh, but, but very, very evidently religious uh, in a way that his listeners can understand in, in famous features like the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural, but really throughout in, his, in all his rhetoric. Uh, Richard Carradine mm-hmm. has argued that, that, that Lincoln spoke the, the clergy's language mm-hmm. uh, and that they, they, they followed him, that he, he cultivated a strong alliance there. Is so. So, is the South really unique in in having the clergy promote their cause? Or, no, or I don't to think make so. I, I can draw an interesting. I think there is an interesting contrast between the way the Southern clergy viewed God in the war and the way Abraham Lincoln did. Um, Lincoln, you know, most notably in the Second Inaugural, uh, doubted that that he or any person could understand God's will in the war and that was not the case for Confederate clergy they were certain um, that God was on their side Um, whereas I think Lincoln was worried about whether the Union was on God's side right yes yeah yeah, it's a critical distinction and and, uh, one worth making I, I raised this question about the clergy participation partly uh, uh, it, it's referenced heavily in uh, Harry Stout's book Upon the Altar of a Nation which uh, I he was on this show some years ago and I think was maybe the only guest I, I really strongly disagreed with I, I tend not to invite people uh, just to, to argue with them uh, but I thought his picture of I'll use the word blame for both the northern, <coughs> excuse me, northern and southern clergy, was really oversimplified and uh, you know mis- misunderstood uh, uh, the role of religion in in the mid nineteenth century and, and and certainly in in promoting the Civil War. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot of, of having to to argue with him or not, but I'll no, but I, I I agree with you, Jerry. I think that we have to understand that these. These were citizen armies. Uh, these were not professional armies waging war, and and the religious 
leaders, the ministers of these men, you know, sometimes these ministers, you know, followed the, followed the men to war as the chaplains of their regiments. Um, sometimes they stayed at home and became uh, I- important uh, suppliers for the men in ranks. Um, they, they played a critical role in, in the war effort of, of both sides. And, and you know, I, when we look at it from that practical, sort of pragmatic communal level, um, then I think it makes more sense why they would appear to be so nationalistic or even jingoistic in their in their sermons because they were in, they were immersed in a war that was um, that was touching every community, every pew of every church. Another thing that ties in with the, the religiosity of the sides fighting the war is, uh, of course, one of the Ten Commandments is "Thou shalt not kill." Yet, uh, killing, you know, fighting, war means fighting, and fighting means killing, as as Forrest uh, is supposed to have said. How is it that Southerners were able to sufficiently uh, dehumanize Northerners? Uh, You argue that that the ability to do this was one of the things that sustained them late in the war. But the obvious question then is, is Northerners and Southerners are, are pretty darn similar. They speak the same language. Same religion, same culture, uh, same history. How how do Southerners persuade themselves that Northerners are, are are so different as to be worth killing? It's a fascinating question because, as you just noted, unlike foreign wars where there may be a language barrier, uh, or wars in which um, the 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 enemy uh, consists of of another uh, race. Uh, I'm thinking of, of John Dower's sp- fantastic book on uh, the Pacific War, War Without Mercy. Um, in the Civil War, every encounter you had with the enemy, um, with the exception of African-American troops, um, every encounter you had with the enemy um, was an encounter with a, a fellow, uh, probably Anglo-American, Probably a Protestant who who spoke English um, and and lived on a family farm. I mean, if you just look at the statistics, these men are remarkably similar, and yet they managed to demonize Northerners so effectively uh, that I I think it it really does stain posterity. Um, regional stereotypes um, that you know to some extent still exist today. Uh, they were evident. Before the war, and the and the war sort of crystallized and hardened these stereotypes into a, a hatred for for the Yankee um, that that helped these men fight the war to the bitter end. Well, I'm speaking as a, a Michigan native teaching in North Carolina, and uh, I, I'm taking from your accent, you're not a native Mississippian. Uh, no, I'm from Pennsylvania. Te- and you're teaching in Mississippi. Uh, what is it about us Yankees that they find to hate? Well, <laughs> I would like to say that, that it's a case of envy, but <laughs> I, no, I, I think that um, they're concerned about um, this notion that, that Yankees are uh, materialists who, who only care about Money uh, that 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 Yan- a, a Yankee is someone who's um, you know unethical and un- untrustworthy. 
uh, a Yankee, uh, therefore, in wartime, is someone who is fighting not for a higher cause, but for uh, a mercenary's pay. Um, if they're if they are godless individuals, which in you know in the antebellum South, given the proliferation of of religious sects in the in the Northeast, many Southerners believed that that the Yankees were in fact. Um, godless in some sense, uh, then th they could not be trusted to be uh, honorable Christian soldiers, uh, which meant that since most of the war was fought in the South, that, that Southern men could expect uh, from the enemy all kinds of atrocious behavior. And, and when that sort of destructive war becomes policy halfway through the conflict, then Southerners who believed in these stereotypes of Yankees said, yes, there, there is proof positive that uh, they intend to not just win the war against us, but subjugate us, uh, enslave us, ruin, ruin our land, uh, and, and make us uh, slaves in our, in our own country. You know, the campaigns like Sherman's campaigns uh, seem to validate in their eyes, in Southern eyes, this notion that, that the Yankee was um, an, an unethical, immoral, uh, inhuman person who, uh, given the, the hordes of them that happened to live in the North, um, once those hordes were unleashed on the South, um, any, anything goes. Any, you know, all the rules of warfare are, are out the window, and, and, and we can't expect anything from them, including quarters sometimes. It's, it's an interesting progression because at the beginning of the war, uh, as you point out, the stereotype of the Yankees included uh, that they are, they're not good warriors. They're, they're these pencil-necked, you know, uh, store clerks. Milltown boys. Exactly. So, they're, they're, they, you know, one rebel can whip ten Yankees. So, you've got the inept Yankee stereotype, and, and McClellan doesn't go too far to, to disabuse them of that. But when that wears off after uh, uh, some some stunning defeats then you can move to the the evil Yankee stereotype with Sherman mm -hmm. uh, and if you can't explain how, how God allows the evil to and then you can go to the numberless hordes of evil Yankees mm -hmm. uh, and, and you, you, you continue to, to adopt the stereotype to fit the reality instead of uh, uh, accepting reality as it is well we're going to take another break. I want to ask about where where some of this came from, uh, what what differentiated the, the two sides, uh, and some other important questions. Uh, so we'll take a short break. Uh, I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jason Phillips, author of Die Hard Rebels, The Confederate Culture of Invincibility, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. We all lead busy lives, and sometimes we think we can't take care of our health. We battle food addictions, time restrictions, and media conflictions when it comes to our health. 
Now, you can tune in to the Dare to Be Healthy show with host Alia Almoayed. Good health comes to those who dare to take the leap into the amazing world of natural healing. Find out what it's like to look and feel great. And finally, live your life to its maximum potential. Let Alia and her guests show you how. Dare to Be Healthy is broadcast live Mondays at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Hey, did you know Voice America has partnered with the Kidstar Network to expand their reach through Voice America Kids? Voice America Kids will feature talk radio for kids, by kids, along with special event programming and live broadcasts. Each program is conveniently archived for on-demand listening at any time. Please check our archives for the latest events and happenings on voiceamericakids.com. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Jason Phillips about his book, Die Hard Rebels, The Confederate Culture of Invincibility. It's a fascinating look at what sustained Confederate soldiers as the war turned against them, how they uh, found in religion, how they found in uh, comradeship, how they found in uh, their, their, their self-image and their image of the enemy, ways to maintain their willingness to fight uh, right up to the end of the war and uh, as we touched on briefly in the, the previous segment, uh, after the war, as the, the the lost cause concept begins to grow, with the idea that the South was never truly defeated or honestly defeated. Um, Jason, one of the things that interested me was you, we were talking uh, in our last segment about how similar Northerners and Southern, Southerners were uh, and how that complicates the problem of demonizing the enemy, which both sides had to do to a degree. Uh, how you had to look at the enemy as inferior if you were going to go back on a lifetime's social conditioning not to kill your fellow man. Uh, you have to treat the enemy soldier as not your fellow man. So the Southerners did this, uh, as, as we said, treating them as, as Yankees, uh, inept or, or evil. One of the things that distinguishes the two sides, it helps define who's a Yankee and who's not, uh, obviously is a, a slavery, and that's a, a big topic. But you mentioned also the, the intense localism of Southerners, that most people just didn't travel very much. They really saw uh, their homeland not just as the, the South or even their state or their county, but their their home, their, their, their farmstead. Uh, and, and today, uh, we were discussing international programs here on campus at East Carolina, and one of the faculty pointed out uh, when they take students overseas, these students from Eastern North Carolina not only haven't been overseas before, uh, some of them, many of them, have not been on an airplane before. Uh, I don't know if you see that as much in Starkville, but uh, there's a lot of localism yet in the South. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this this war, and I, I suspect that many men recognized this when they enlisted, this war was their their great adventure away from home. Uh, they certainly carried the the localism with them, um, but this was an opportunity to to see the world in their view. I mean, the 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 world beyond their county line, um, and not just the the world of of other places, but but forming armies with with men from other states 
um, was was an interesting development for these men. They, you know, there, there was of course intense rivalries within Union and Confederate armies, not just among generals for for rank and recognition, but but among different units. Um, and and you know, there's there was a lot of of um, I don't know. It's almost like SEC football <laughs> mentality that that some you know. There's a stereotype of what a North Carolina soldier is like, and what a Georgian is like, and what a Mississippian is like. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't want to give you the sense that that this was a this was a view that Confederate soldiers created of an enemy for that did not extend to their fellow comrades in arms. Right? That they, that they're that there were gradations of, of differences uh, throughout the, the army and the armies on both sides. Um, what's fascinating to me is to, to read the letters and diaries when, when Confederates come face to face with the enemy outside and beyond uh, a battle, when they encounter uh, Union soldiers as deserters or prisoners or the wounded. Um, because those were encounters um, tailor made given the fact that they spoke the same language. You know, these are events that can disprove those stereotypes. And yet, more often than not, the men, of course, carried the stereotype to the event and used it to interpret the behavior of the deserter. Right? Obviously, a deserter is someone, for instance, who um, is only fighting for pay or, or, or some other. Um, uh, senseless, uh, meaningless goal and motive that, that you know you, you find in the deserters, uh, or the accounts of the deserters and Confederate uh, letters and diaries that, well, you know these these men aren't fighting for their homes the way we are. They're they're you know they they uh, don't believe in the cause, which could very well be true. Um, mm -hmm. you know, their, their morale is is uh, rock bottom in the Union Army. Um, so they're getting a very skewed perspective of the enemy, um, given just the nature of, of the, the encounters they have with them. All the all the people they're seeing, and that they can speak with one on one, are going to be more likely than not uh, discouraged, demoralized Yankees. And 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 yet they come away, as you point out, even after seeing examples of bravery, examples of heroism uh, by Northern soldiers. They're it's ultimately the stereotypes that tend to prevail for for many of them. Yes, um, and one of the one of the fascinating comments that's repeated whenever a, a diehard rebel admits the courage of of a Union charge, for instance, and they capture some of the men, the, the charge fails. Um, they explain the courage as inebriation. They wow. say, "Well, those men were drunk. Um, that's that's where they found the courage. They found the courage in in, in whiskey. You know, either the officers were uh, were com completely drunk, uh, and and that's the only thing that can explain why the Yankees uh, managed to cross that murderous field um, and become our prisoners. I I've tried to explain this. Um, you know, I suspect that." It certainly um, alcohol was in use. Um, you, you've got an, um, you're facing death. You, you know this mm -hmm. is a worthless charge. Um, 
maybe adrenaline was also a part of the the reaction within the men i don't know but um but that's that's a that's an added explanation uh when they encounter courage that they can't explain away that they can't say well the, these this enemy is in inherently uh cowardice they they can't say that they can't say they're cowardly anymore when they when they see this charge so they say they're drunk instead uh, that's and Gerald Linderman has a whole book on on courage in the Civil War, embattled courage, and and he he addresses that that both sides attributed the other side's courage to 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 the bottle mm-hmm. uh, because it conflicted with what they they wanted to believe the other side. Uh, as we run low on time, I want to ask you about a really fascinating uh, element uh, that you write about here, which is the the prevalence of rumors during war, and it's not some that's a really tricky thing to track down as a historian uh, but in any war rumors are going to spread about uh, the government wants to keep information at a premium it, it has value so uh, you'll have more demand for information than there is supply and people will create rumors to fill that gap uh, but what you found was that most of the rumors you you encountered within the south were were positive rumors not rumors of further defeat uh, that struck me as very curious. Yeah, I was fascinated by it, and and because I was trying to explain in in Die Hard Rebels why Confederate soldiers expected to win the war, I finally had to take all of these rumors seriously, and and in the end, devote an entire chapter to them because uh, it was clear that these rumors were were the primary means that soldiers had for understanding what I call the distant war, and the, the, the campaigns that they're not waging. Um, and, and, and not only the, the distant theaters of operation, but also uh, the diplomatic war uh, and the northern home front. Um, so, I, so I concentrated on rumors from, from those you know, three areas and and they were surprisingly positive all the way to the end. Um, I suspect that means that these diehard rebels were uh, spreading these rumors. Um, but you know, given the nature of the sources, uh, it would have been futile for me to try and and, and hunt down you know the the rumor monger who said this. <laughs> you know this this guy in Louisiana is behind all of this. Uh, well, you know, I, I mean, rumors take on a life of their own. Like you cite, for example, uh, U.S. Grant is dead. Um, the rumor yeah. of Grant's death spread more than once, and you know it's probably not one guy starting that. Uh, uh, th- th- well, l- let me give an example in Paul Fussell's work on the Second World War, which uh, you reference on occasion. He, he points out as himself a veteran, he remembered that one of the major rumors that kept spreading throughout the war was that. Dina Durbin, a sort of B-movie actress, was dead. You know, why yeah. her? Why this random B-movie actress? Yet that just had legs. That that rumor kept on going. Um, and that, but that has nothing to do with. You know, that's not like Hitler's dead or or, or the war. Mm-hmm. Thing. It, that winning army could afford to have that rumor go around. The Confederate rumor is U.S. Grant is dead. Yes, and I encountered far more rumors of Grant or or Sherman being dead. Uh, then I then I found rumors of of Lee or some other cherished Confederate general being dead. Th- 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 those negative rumors were uh, were few and far between. Um, I suspect it would have been because 
if you spread a rumor that Robert E. Lee is dead, um, and let's say you're in Starkville, Mississippi, um, that rumor isn't going to gain many legs if the surrounding community considers that kind of language um, treasonous. You know, if if the if the home front is is you know really dedicated to the cause, um, or if you're in the in the ranks in another theater, like maybe you're you know in the Army of Tennessee, and you and you start you know hearing rumors of Lee's death, um, spreading a rumor like that uh, doesn't prove that you are committed to the cause. If anything, it raises suspicions that you're not. Uh, and so I think that that your know, patriotism probably worked as a filter in the South. Um, it, it doesn't explain why in, in other wars, if you look at Fussell's work, for instance, and, and there are other you know, great works on, on rumors in 20th century uh, conflicts, more often than not, the, the rumors are negative rumors, um, and they're rumors that attack morale. Um, but that wasn't what I found in the Confederacy. It's a unique feature, and there really is uh, a lot in this book to explain the, uh, in many ways, distinctive experience of the Confederacy. Uh, Jason, we are unfortunately out of time. I will say that the next time I see a uh, a, a pickup truck heading through uh, Greenville, North Carolina, with a uh, bumper sticker that says, The South Will Rise Again, uh, I will think of this book and the culture of invincibility and, and whether there are connections to be drawn there. Although I'll say Greenville's not really a hotbed of that sort of thing. It's a university town, but, but we get some of that. Um, but in any case, uh, it, it, the book is, is very interesting. Uh, reader, listeners to the show will want to get a copy of it and read of it. And uh, Jason, uh, by coincidence, since, since I will be out there on Monday, I look forward to uh, maybe chatting some more with you about this. But thank you for yes. being on the show. Thank you very much, Jerry. I'll see you on Monday. And listeners, uh, I'll talk with you next Friday. And as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.